Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. War, what is it good for? That's what Edwin Starr sang in 1970. War can't give life, it can only take it away, he said, which is true. But sometimes war can also give the opportunity to find meaning in life that is otherwise elusive. Historians can't say how many men and women this was true of during the Civil War, but sometimes they find an example. Paul Whitaker is a historian who has done this with the story of a person from New York State who left a revealing diary of her wartime experience. And she's chronicled this in A Civil Life in an Uncivil Time, Julia Wilbur's Struggle for Purpose. We'll talk with her about it tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the uh, satellite office of World Headquarters of Civil War Talk Radio. That is my 
room, my office, my home office at 205 Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not from the campus of East Carolina University, just down 10th Street, a little ways from here, but instead uh, doing it from home tonight because of other things that have to be done. But as always, not speaking for the university or for anyone else in the house, not for my wife, not for my cat named Candy, who's not in the room right now, not for anybody, just myself, and my guests will do the same as always as we do here on the show. It is a balmy day in February 2018, Uh, unseasonably warm, 70 degrees out, short sleeve weather, just doesn't feel right to a Michigan person like myself, but that's how it is here in North Carolina. It's winter. It's the Winter Olympics are underway. I'm sure many of you are watching that from wherever you are around the globe. Uh, I was thrilled to see the Hungarian uh, half-pipe ski competitor, who is actually American apparently, but uh, who is just an average skier, uh, better than I am. Uh, I haven't skied in a long time, but not not way better. But through a, a quirk in the rules, found a way to qualify as Hungary's competitor. And it was just, I just loved watching somebody ski very calmly and carefully down the course and not crash and get the low score, but compete in the Olympics. How, how cool could that be? Uh, in other cool news, last time or maybe two weeks ago, I mentioned to you we were working on a museum exhibit here uh, with a public history class at East Carolina. We are uh, creating an exhibit to uh, uh, tell the story of a uh, World War II naval aviator from the Farmville area, actually from Fountain, North Carolina specifically. And by getting a story about this in the paper, somebody saw it, called somebody who called somebody, and we ended up getting a phone call from the uh, surviving youngest brother of the pilot, who we didn't know was still alive. And I'm going to meet with him tomorrow, looking forward to that very much, getting some memories. The uh, uh, the brother who was still alive was just a boy during the Second World War, not a participant. But uh, certainly he can tell us something about life in that era, and it will be uh, very interesting to meet with him. So that's, that's a good thing going on. Uh, a, a not good thing going on, um, happened this past week that uh, anyone reading the news uh, anywhere knows about. And uh, it's the kind of thing that happens uh, with some regularity in the United States, much more than in other countries. And it led me to uh, think as a historian uh, about one of the arguments against abolition in the early, uh, in the antebellum era, was that you can't possibly do without an institution so... Uh, so integrated into American economy and society. There were 4 million people living in slavery uh, in 1860. And if you put an average valuation on them of $1,000 each, which is low for a a prime field hand, but high for an infant or an elderly person, um, it's a reasonable number. That comes out to $4 billion of of investment of, of property in the terms of the day. And if you add two more zeros to account for inflation since 1860, now you're talking $400 billion. Um, and just running some rough numbers, apparently, and, and this number 
varies depending where you look, but a round number is that there are 300 million uh, firearms in the United States uh, in civilian hands today. So if you put an average valuation on those of, uh, say, $1,300 each, which I, I'm sure is a little high, but we'll just use it as a round number, it comes out to $400 billion. Uh, the argument against slavery, you can never get rid of something that's $400 billion worth of the, the economy, uh, so don't even try. Uh, I'll leave that at that, uh, uh, whether that's a good argument uh, in the, the present case. Coming up on the show, uh, back to history, next week we'll be talking with Eric Lee Smith, who's the designer of a very well uh, known within its field a, a war game, a, a board game about the American Civil War, not a amusement kind of board game where you push pieces around, but a military simulation called the Civil War. And he's designed some other games, has a new game coming out this month, and uh, is also working on computer games. We'll talk to him about the state of the art of simulating the Civil War in that fashion next week. And then we'll take a week off. It'll be spring break, and I will be attending a writer's retreat, try to uh, clear my mind and do some writing about the Civil War era, uh, but no live show on March 7th. And then we'll come back. We'll have Matt Borowick return to the show. He'll talk about Civil War roundtables and what they're doing all over the country and around the world, for that matter. And uh, on the 21st of March, Michael Fitzgerald comes to us with Reconstruction in Alabama from Civil War to Redemption in the Cotton South. Uh, we may have a discussion of the 11th Corps, the Army of the Potomac, on March 28th. Uh, remains to be seen. And then we've got more interesting things after that, uh, a show about Antietam in the weeks following. Uh, lots of good things coming up, so always go to www.impedimentsofwar.org and Mark Gaffney is the person who maintains that website and also the Facebook page of the same name and that's where you can find out what's going on. Uh, thanks to Mark, he and I have been uh, really uh, partners in this show for a decade and uh, have never actually met face to face. Someday we will. You can also buy books through impedimentsofwar.org. Click on the book pictures, takes you to Amazon. Your click through there supports the Civil War Talk Radio website. You can donate directly to the show at civilwartr at aol.com, which funds I can use to then buy books for the show or to travel to writing retreats or to buy um bags of M&Ms, really anything I want. Uh, so your, your donation is, is always well welcome and well used. Usually it has something to do with the show. I eat the M&Ms while reading the books, for example. Um, <clears throat> so uh, keep that in mind. It's not tax deductible. Uh, it's just for my benefit and your, your, your salved conscience when you donate to the show that you have listened to. Well, let's talk about history today and uh, a, a person that uh, most listeners have never heard of that I had not heard of until reading this book and that I would guess uh, uh, perhaps even the author was not overly familiar until the research began. We'll find out uh, as we talk with our guest tonight, uh, Paula Whitaker, author of A Civil Life in an Uncivil Time, 
Julia Wilbur's Struggle for Purpose. Uh, Ms. Whitaker, are you there? I am indeed. I'm from balmy Virginia tonight as well. Ah, uh, warm there too then. Yep. Um, well, welcome to the show. Um, we, we corresponded a little bit and, and got onto a first name basis, I'm happy to say. So, Paula, glad to have you here. Um, let me start by asking about your day job. What, what do you do when you're not writing about Julia Wilbur? I'm usually writing about other things. I, um, I'm a freelance writer and editor, but mostly for you know, organizations in D.C., um, National Institutes of Health, National Academy of Sciences, um, you know, some of the bigger kind of uh, nonprofits. So a lot of it is um, you know, web content and technical reports and meetings and that sort of thing, which, as you can imagine, there's quite a lot of that going on in Washington. I, I would think so. But even at that, I, the life of a freelance writer fills me with terror, just the concept <laughs> of uh, how you must have nerves of steel to to be able to write and, and know you'll find someone else who wants more writing next week. Well, I've been doing it um, for, I was, let's see, at this point, over 20 years. So ah. um, I guess my nerves are now hardened enough. <laughs> Um, but some of the, although, you know, um, a lot of the things carried over working on this book, most specifically kind of structuring the project, setting my deadlines, and uh, getting it done on time. Well, that's something uh, I tell public history students this all the time, that there, there's work in public history as consultant, uh, in consultancies where you end up going from museum to museum or organization to organization on a freelance basis. And some of the students, that just sounds wonderful. You travel, every job is new, every day is different, and others just think uh, they'd be too insecure. And, and it sounds like you have the same pluses and minuses. Right, exactly. So what got you to uh, the story of Julia Wilbur? Well, I've lived in Alexandria uh, now since the mid-'80s, and every place I've gone, I've always gotten into whatever the local history is. I'm originally from New London, Connecticut. So unlike many of the other you know, guests you've had on your show and, and perhaps yourself, it's not like I grew up sort of living and breathing the Civil War. I mean, I kind of mm-hmm. grew up kind of whatever the history was around me, which in my case was a lot about whaling, the Revolutionary War, and Eugene O'Neill in southeastern Connecticut. Um, when I came down here, I first got involved with um, Alexandria Archaeology is our city-funded um, kind of history and archaeology program. It's really a great program, you know, that not too many cities are really fortunate to have. Um, first, I was doing oral history, and then um, as I, you know, started getting to know the, the folks and kind of seeing what some of the needs were, um, I started doing some research on the Union hospitals that were here in Alexandria. Um, as probably most people know, Alexandria was Union-occupied from the beginning of the Civil War till the end, so there were about 32 hospitals. And along the way, I came across um, a, you know, uh, a diary. It was in microfilm at our local library of this woman, Julia Wilbur, who had gone to visit some of the hospitals and kind of what her observations were, you know, as she was visiting. So I first said that I would help, um, that I would transcribe the, um, the, you know, the diary, kind of the Civil War years of her, of, you know, what she had written. And one thing led to another. Um, I started first doing that. Then it was uh, trying to figure out, you know, who she was, where she had come from, what she did afterwards, some of her experiences. And about about six years later, this book emerged. 
so in in the book you talk about finding uh, not just diaries uh, but but uh, eventually more material than any one person could could transcribe or digest. Could you talk about that? Right. So um, originally, what I knew she had kept was a. Um, a series of little pocket diaries. I mean, those are the kind of things that people could buy at stationery stores at the time. You know, just a little sort of you know, small page per day. And um, that's what I was working with. The originals are at Haverford College, and that's because a great, great nephew of hers named Douglas Steer was a longtime professor there. And he donated them, you know, kind of took them out of his family and donated them to the um, special collections at Haverford um, back in the 80s. Um, you know, I'm about two and a half hours from there, so after I've been working on them for a while, just using microfilm, you know, as you know, when you look at microfilm, you sort of see these big screens, you're really not exactly sure what you're looking at. Um, <laughs> I thought I would go up there and take a look at the originals, and I did, and got to see the pocket diaries, you know, got to feel them and, you know, touch them and that sort of thing, but then I realized that there was a whole other set of diaries, kind of a parallel set that she had kept um, at the same time, and these were kind of like um, uh, little packets of paper that she would have put together and maybe write you know, one, one paragraph one day, three pages the next day, kind of depending on what was going on. So at that point, I'd been working on the transcriptions for a while. I knew if I were to try to transcribe these, it would be, I would probably still be doing it. Um, not to mention they hadn't been microfilmed or scanned. So um, over you know, a period of a few months, um, I worked out uh, an arrangement between Friends of Alexandria Archaeology, which is kind of a nonprofit that supports you know, our, our city program, and Haverford. They scanned, um, they ended up scanning about 12 or 13 years of the, her diaries, you know, one page per scan. And then I got together a group of volunteers, about 35 volunteers from here, and we kind of crowdsourced transcribing them. So each person took about you know, 75 pages, actually most took more than that. Then we traded to do proofreading. So both sets of these diaries, basically from 1860 to 1866, are online and they are searchable and they are actually publicly available you know, to any of the listeners of the show or, or whoever wants to do research. So they're really great resources because um, you, know, you could look for a particular date or a name or a place and maybe see if she said something about it. I mean, she didn't always, but I mean, one of the great finds, for example, was... Um, the, let me, Paula, huh? let me just step in here. We're yep. going to take a short break and come okay. back and, and talk about that. Uh, marvelous that crowdsourcing works to do things like that. We're talking tonight with Paula Whitaker, author of A Civil Life in an Uncivil Time, Julia Wilbur's Struggle for Purpose. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. 
All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Paula Whitaker, author of A Civil Life in an Uncivil Time, Julia Wilbur's Struggle for Purpose. Uh, It's a story of a 19th century a reformer, abolitionist, uh, a person who had to find a, a role in a society that didn't necessarily uh, have a place for someone of her ideas and, and uh, temperament and so on. And uh, we just started talking in our first segment about the diaries of Julia Wilbur that are the source for this book. Um, so, Paula, the Tell us a little bit about uh, Julia Wilbur's background, uh, uh, both both her family and and maybe something of the the world that she lived in, the the, the domestic cult of domesticity of, of of that era, the idea of what women were supposed to do. Sure, um, she was a Quaker. She was born into a large Quaker family, originally just north of right near Poughkeepsie. Uh, when she was about 15, though, the family moved to um, just south of Rochester, New York, in the town of Rush. And um, there, I mean, she really became exposed to the different, you know, kind of social movements and ideas of that area. Of that area, you know, Frederick Douglass was there. You know, Susan B. Anthony. Um, when she was 29, she became a teacher and moved into the city. So. Um, she really was had a little bit more autonomy than most women did at the time. She was the only unmarried uh, sibling in the in this large family, and I think that really kind of gave her a little bit more leeway, you know, to kind of make her way, to earn her own money, that sort of thing. Um, so when she was in her 30s and 40s, um, you know, she writes about you know teaching during the day, and by the way, 
uh, noticing the difference in wages between female and male teachers and speaking out about it. Um, and then many evenings going to meetings, going to lectures, you know, really kind of being exposed to the different ideas and people that were, you know, coming through Rochester at that time. Well, speaking as a uh Son of a uh, of two teachers and also married to a teacher, uh, Wilbur. You point out at one one point she tries to get the Rochester to pay. She says, "Why not pay people equally for doing equal work?" And I read that and I thought, "Well, that's just crazy talk." Uh, right. You know who who believes that? Uh, yeah, that was sort of the reaction that she got as well. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, uh, the, there there we are in, in the eighteen fifties. Rochester is a remarkable place uh, to, to grow up. There, there's so much going on. You talk about, uh, uh, you know, you, you've got the uh, Charles Finney, the the preacher. You've got the Millerites, the Fox sisters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 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 it's really a hotbed of of ideas. Right, and uh, yeah, so that was the kind of thing that she was able to be exposed to. Um, there was a number of groups formed, you know, anti-slavery groups. And the one, um, there's actually two that she became involved with, but the one that she became most involved in, in fact, who eventually sent her down to Alexandria, who paid her way, was a group called the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society. So this was a group that formed in the early 1850s. It was never very large. It was, as the name would suggest, all women. Um, it was all white, um, you know, kind of middle class women, but they were able to raise, you know, quite quite generous sums of money for the time. They would have, you know, festivals. They'd do sort of an autograph book as a fundraiser. And they used the money uh, in the before the war um, mostly to support um, Frederick Douglass's newspaper, the North Star. Um, they would give, um, you know, individual um, portions of money to fugitive slaves, you know, stopping a Rochester on the way to Canada. Um, and at one point, they, you know, one year of their budget, I mean, they raised like like fifteen hundred dollars. So that was that was a pretty good amount of money for that time. Um, they're also able to get in, you know, really high visibility speakers, and they would use these different kind of public halls that had been built, you know, to sort of as you know, part of Rochester's sort of civic life, uh, you know. And um, Frederick Douglass gave a very famous, you know. Uh, speech on the 5th of July, you know, very markedly. Um, it was actually a speech sponsored by, you know, by the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society. You know, what is to slay the 5th of July, the 4th of July? That, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, one of the things uh, that is striking about any Civil War study is how small the country is with 33 million people, you know, a tenth of, of our population today. And so someone like Julia Wilbur, it, it Maybe not surprising. She runs into people like Frederick Douglass. She knows, uh, as you show in your book, she runs into and meets a number of people that uh, we've heard of today. Uh, did she actually like personally know Frederick Douglass? Yeah, I mean, um, she, you know, they weren't like you know great, you know, bosom buddy friends. But I mean, she talked mm-hmm. many times about visiting, uh, visiting them, you know, corresponding with him when she was in Alexandria. Uh, he actually came to Alexandria in 1864 and visited. Uh, you know, she kind of helped show him around. Um, she actually was in contact with him after the war when he lived in Washington as well. Um, Susan B. Anthony was a fellow teacher, and so they knew each other from the 1850s and knew each other you know, pretty much the rest of their lives. Um, you know, a number of other uh, reformers who were in Rochester. And then even when she comes down here uh, to our area, the Washington-Alexandria area, 
Um, I mean, as you point out, people just sort of knocked on doors and made themselves <laughs> made themselves known when they wanted to. So, you know, she had many run-ins with um, you know different senators, and you know, of course, was that the white knot that she had personal dealings with um, either Lincoln or you know, future presidents, but she you know would go to the White House on her you know various public occasions, that sort of thing. And and, and and would write to them and, and so on. Uh, oh, yeah. Now, in, in, in talking about uh, abolition, last week on the show, Dan Crofts talked about the uh, the 13th Amendment of 1861, the, the, right. uh, the, the amendment that would have protected slavery. And the whole show, really, we, we talked about the anti-slavery movement, the Republicans who uh, who took a, a – a political course toward ending slavery, to putting it in the course of ultimate extinction, they were willing to uh, agree that the government couldn't touch slavery in the South because they thought that was constitutionally uh, mandated, so they weren't giving anything up to agree. And the actual abolitionists, the ones who thought it should end now, uh, in their world are just a, a minority fringe that has no authority. And it's very interesting now reading uh, your book and seeing things through Julia Wilbur's eyes. There is a, a thriving, if small, uh, a thriving and vocal, truly abolitionist community in the North, uh, and, and, and Wilbur is part of that. Right, right. Um, you know, and I think in retrospect, maybe sometimes we think, oh, everybody was very anti-slavery and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, favorite abolition. I think that's a little bit of, you know, the, you know, kind of wishful thinking 2020 hindsight. But I mean, she was definitely a part of that world that would, you know, from the start saw that the Civil War was a way to end slavery. You know, that was what she was advocating right from the start. Yeah, which, which again, was something we talked about last week, how, how some, and that was Dan's argument that, that uh, we, we look back and imagine everybody saw it that right. way. Right. And he says very few did, but uh, but some did. He admits some did, and, and certainly right. Wilbur's an example of that. Now, she goes to Alexandria, which, as you point out, was under Union occupation. Uh, give us a little picture of what Alexandria was like uh, before the Civil War or in, in the first year of the war. Sure. Um, so it's right across from Washington, and even then there were, you know, boats and a bridge to connect the two. Um, it was uh, in the 1800s, actually a part of the District of Columbia. It was, quote, retroceded back to Virginia in the 1840s. Um, but it was a city of about, thir- or a city about 13,000 people, um, about 10,000 white. Uh, blacks were split between uh, free and enslaved. Um, it had uh, some very lucrative slave trading businesses as well. Um, in fact, one of the things that we're um, uh, sort of having working with right now is that there is a former slave trading place called Freedom House. Um, it had been preserved through the years, and uh, it, there was a small museum, and just now it's going to be taken over by the city to be able to expand its hours. So that's actually, even as we're speaking, it's going to be a really good addition to, you know, kind of uh, understanding the story of Alexandria. Um, at the time, you know, most of Alexandria, or obviously the white men who could vote, um, were unionists. I mean, they did not initially support seceding um, from the Union. Uh, after Fort Sumter, then, you know, and the call for troops, then kind of the mood changed. And, uh, you know, Alexandria, as well as the rest of Virginia, of course, seceded in May of 1861. That night is when the Union Army came in and... Um, you know, and made itself at home for the rest of the war. So because it was so close to Washington 
And because it had some logistics already in place, you know, railroad and wharves and that sort of thing, I mean, it really became this center of activity. There were uh, at the hospitals, as I mentioned, that there were, you know, uh, camps all across, all around town. Um, there was, you know, big logistics, you know, with the quartermaster type things going on. So, um, uh, you know, it was really, uh, you know, a center of kind of logistics for the union. Um, it was also, you know, because it was behind union lines, a place where people escaping slavery could come and, uh, you know, not be returned back to back to their slaveholders. So um, that was really the, the what drew Julia Wilbur here to work was to try to help you know, advocate for better conditions for. We don't know exactly how many, but about seven to eight thousand people came in. Um, as I mentioned, if the you know, pre-war population had 13,000, a lot of the whites left, uh, you know, at the beginning of the war. Um, but that really, between the freed people, the Union Army, I mean, it really changed, it really changed Alexandria quite a bit during that time. So you've got this influx, uh, well, of course, of soldiers, but also uh, uh, contrabands, the, the mm-hmm. former slaves. Now they've, they've escaped, their status is unclear, they're contraband of war, at least until the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, and, and who, who's in charge of them? What, what, uh, uh, and and how, does, how does Julia Wilbur get involved with them? Right. Well, officially, the Union Army was in charge of, of, um, of you know, kind of conditions for them under the provost marshal. Um, and, uh, you know, I sort of sometimes say if there were 10 things they were responsible for, this was kind of number 11 on their list. I mean, it was sort of one more thing. But um, they uh, were given rations, you know, for food um, and very, very minimal, um, you know, housing and health care and that sort of thing. So um, there were other people coming into um, these areas. You know, there was mostly, you know, uh, maybe famous examples in Port Royal, you know, in South Carolina, um, but also in Washington. Um, people were coming from different relief organizations and under various auspices to see what they could do to try to help. So um, that was, you know, uh, her original plan was really not very well thought out, to be honest with you. Um, the Rochester Ladies Group knew that they wanted to somehow, you know, kind of support this effort and kind of help the freed people. And the original thing was, you know, maybe she might be a teacher, maybe it would be in Washington. Um, you know, we're not really sure, but they agreed to pay her expenses down. And um, she really came without any clear idea of what she was going to do or where she was going to live. And I to me, that's a pretty brave thing to do in 1862 as, as a civilian woman. Um, she did come with letters of introduction to a uh, group called the National Freedmen's Relief Association in Washington. And as she went around to try to meet some of these um, these folks, they said, oh, you really need to go to Alexandria. Things are a lot worse over there. And she agreed and tried to figure out, you know, sort of, what she was going to do, and it was really not being beholden to a you know particular organization. It was almost like again being a freelancer, if if you will, um, mm-hmm. having to find a, you know her own place to live, um, figuring out what to do every day, uh, and um, it took a little while. I mean, you know, there's, there's some diary entries that are like, "Ooh, what have I got myself into?" Um, but eventually, she realized that there was a role that she could play that nobody else was really advocating for them, and that was. That was the part that she could play. It it is a remarkable story, a story of self-invention. She just, as you say, she shows up, doesn't know what 
what she's supposed to do or what she right. can do, and, and no one's going to tell her. Um, it, there are other people there. There's, there's right. the, uh, uh, in particular, the, the union officer who's supposed to be in charge of the contrabands and uh, ministers, and, and they've got their own agendas, and she doesn't necessarily uh, get along with them. Right. Uh, I want to ask you about that, but let me push the story ahead briefly. Mm -hmm. Uh, She spends a year there, but after a year, uh, the following summer of 1863, she goes back home to to New York, and her family life was, was, seems to me, quite unhappy. Um, uh, But she does go home maybe to get away from the heat of Virginia. Uh, Could you talk about that visit home? Sure. Um, first of all, for, she um, did stay in this area for the rest of her life. You know, she, um, through the Civil War, and then she moved to Washington. But every, just about every year, um, she would go back to upstate New York, you know, during the summer for, you know, a month, a couple months, whatever. Part of it was to get out of the heat and, you know, and the sort of conditions here. And part of it was, you know, kind of taking on the mantle of dutiful daughter yet again. Um, she, uh, you know, was often called upon to, um, uh, you know, help with various nieces and nephews. Uh, her father um, had uh, what has been sort of post-diagnosed, you know, today as probably trachoma. Uh, he was, you know, able to see a little bit, but basically was legally blind. So um, even in her 20s, her mother passed away, giving birth to the youngest child of the family. At the time, Julia was 19, I'm sort of going back in time a little bit, but mm-hmm. that kind of sets the stage for her to kind of, you know, really take on the mantle at various points of being kind of caregiver for the family. Um, she had this one sort of very tragic uh, experience where um, one of her sisters died in childbirth, and uh, it was, this was kind of late 1850s, it was decided that Julia would take charge of the toddler daughter who was left, it was a little girl named Frida, and you know, at that point, Julia left teaching. She left kind of the abolition world. Uh, but Frida was, you know, went back to her father like very about a year and a half later, and that just really devastated her. I mean, this was going to maybe be the you know child she never would have. You know, and this this became her child. And so um, when you know we're talking about people sort of inventing themselves or reinventing themselves in a war, um, I mean, from a personal point of view, this was something that. Um, you know, really made a difference in her life. I mean, as the war broke out, she was, um, you know, depressed. She was, like, grieving the loss of this child. She was sort of not happy in her, you know, father. Her father remarried. She didn't really get along with the stepmother. I mean, it was really a little soap opera-ish. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, at one point she writes something like, I can't be worried about disunion at the country. There's too much disunion at home. Um, so this was an opportunity for her to leave all that behind. And um, although, as you know, as you mentioned, she did go back you know, regularly and, of course, kept in contact with you know, various members of her family. But um, this was a new life for her. So um, there's it, that it, aspect of it as well. It, it really is uh, absolutely filled voids, uh, certainly, in, in her life, or certainly appears that right. way from the book. We're going to take another short break. We'll come okay. back, talk more with Paula Whitaker. Our guest tonight, she is the author of A Civil Life in an Uncivil Time, Julia Wilbur's Struggle for Purpose. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Paula Whitaker, author of A Civil Life in an Uncivil Time, Julia Wilbur's Struggle for Purpose. It is based on the diaries of Julia Wilbur, a... 19th century uh, abolitionist who traveled from New York State down to Alexandria, Virginia, and became involved in relief efforts for the uh, freed people living there, the former slaves, starting in 1862, uh, trying to help uh, supplement the the government's rather meager efforts to provide uh, rations and, and shelter and clothing for these people. And we, we talked in our first two segments about how Julia Wilbur essentially uh, creates her own role, uh, goes where help is needed and finds a way to help. No one's actually supervising her in any way. She does, however, run into authority figures. She has to deal with uh, the Union Army. She has to deal with uh, other uh, male uh, relief agents, ministers who uh, – are, are not comfortable with a woman taking any initiative. Uh, how does that go for, for Julia Wilbur? Um, well, she is referred as a, quote, troublesome and interfering person. Um, mm. that, I found that in a National Archives letter, which was, like, very exciting. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, she also had a very important partner and ally in all this, and that was Harriet Jacobs. Um, Harriet was actually born, I guess, kind of near where you are in ECU. She was born in Edenton, North Carolina, uh, mm-hmm. as a slave. Um, one of the things that's most uh, noteworthy is uh, the book that she wrote about her experiences in slavery and escaping called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. I'm sure a lot of, you know, you know of it and a lot of listeners do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they had actually met briefly in Rochester in the late 1840s because Harriet's brother was there, you know, kind of brought in by Frederick Douglass, you know, kind of in, in his, um, his activities. 
um, little knowing, of course, that 15 years later they would be in Alexandria in a very different you know, place and time. Um, Harriet was sent to Alexandria doing sort of a similar thing of see what you could do. We're not really sure what you're going to do um, by uh, New York Yearly Meeting of Friends, like a Quaker group you know, out, of, out of New York City. And um, she, as Julia did, came with letters of introduction and not really a clear idea of what she was going to do. And after a little bit of sort of jockeying around and kind of how are they going to work together, um, they realized how much more effective they would be together. Uh, and one of the things that I really sort of loved as I was working on this book is um, just the idea of a black woman and a white woman really working together as partners, you know, which did not happen very often back in those times. Um, so there are different uh, um, times that were not always successful where they figured out something that needed to be changed. Um, one example is when they realized that there was a plan afoot to, um, what are we going to do with the orphans? Oh, I know, we'll take them, and there's a smallpox hospital with some extra space, we'll move the orphans to the hospital. <laughs> and it's like, you know, even with very basic you know, health knowledge at the time, like, that's not really a very good idea. So no. the two of them, you know, um, have to sort of figure out how they're going to deal with the military governor and the provost marshal to protest, um, and they get very nervous about it, and they, but they are successful. Um, that was in 1863, early 1863. By 1865, though, they are much more empowered women. I mean, they when they see something going on, I mean, they have, sometimes they have to, like, plan their strategy a little bit better. I mean, they weren't always successful, you know, down the road, but they would figure out a way to, um, you know, to make their point known. So um, it, they were, like I said, they they definitely ruffled feathers. Um, there's a wonderful photo of, you know, the provost marshal's office on King Street. You know, they took over a bank, and there's this kind of gauntlet of, you know, men kind of hanging out in the front. And I could just always picture, like, either Julia or Julia and Harriet, you know, having to walk through this gauntlet to go in to, like, complain yet again or make a request yet again, and everyone's sort of like, oh, here they come. But but they did. So. And the, the, as you say, it is a remarkable partnership. And another example of, of the small world of the 1860s, because, uh, again, right. Harriet Jacobs' story is well known. Right. But, uh, but not Julia Wilbur's, but here they are, partners working for this. Now, by 1864, you've got uh, a change. Not only are there the, the freed people, but now that the Emancipa- Emancipation Proclamation is in effect, you have the, the USCT, the United States Colored mm-hmm. Troops, uh, and and they uh, they start to show up. The, at, at this point, there's a hospital involved. This wasn't Julia Wilbur did not come south to be a nurse, but right. now she's involved in a hospital. How how does that happen? Well. Um as the uh, army discovered, you know, in many cases they had woefully underestimated, you know, the facilities needed. So um, earlier in the war, um, mostly for civilians, there has been a, there was a small quote contraband hospital. And um, as U.S. colored troops, you know, were also fighting and, and getting sick along with uh, along with white ones, um, they realized that they needed more hospital facilities. Um, you know, shocking. They couldn't possibly have integrated hospital facilities. No, no. But um, they did build a, um, you know, kind of in the in the um, plan of, you know, hospitals at the time of the large wards, the open air sort of things. They built a, uh, what's called Lobature Hospital after Toussaint Lobature, you know, the Haitian revolutionary. Um, and uh, it was... Um, 
it was built, you know, uh, in, let's see, I think it opened in early 1864. Um, and, you know, she sort of describes it as, you know, at one point it being, oh, it's so nice, they'll probably decide that blacks can't stay in it, they're going to leave it for whites. But it was actually mm-hmm. used for um, both civilian and military, basically non-whites. There were a few Native Americans who were also, um, you know, hospitalized there. And... <clears throat> What they would do is, no, they weren't nurses, but they would, you know, try to make sure that the conditions were good. They would get, you know, try to um, get supplies from either from the Sanitary Commission in Washington or from folks up north uh, to, you know, try to just help, you know, make things a little bit more comfortable for the soldiers. Yeah, the soldiers were conscious of their status, that they were, uh, they were not contraband. You mentioned at one point they were burying the the deceased soldiers from the right. hospital with the uh, in in the sort of potter's field for the the uh, for for the slaves the ex slaves and and this was another issue they had to that uh, Wilbur and, and Jacobs have to fight right well this was something that that the soldiers you know really took on on their own and i mean i sort of a story that i wish would get more attention because it really is pretty amazing but um, they were supposed to be in the military cemetery, um, but uh, there was a, um, a superintendent of contrabands. He was kind of he's kind of the villain in the book. He's a Baptist missionary, but he <laughs> was continuing to bury the soldiers in this civilian cemetery. And um, it's a little unclear. Maybe he got money per. You know, it's not, I'm not, it's not, we're not sure exactly why. Um, but nonetheless, um, by the end of 1864. Um, a movement was afoot among the soldiers, and you know we don't know exactly like why then. Like maybe somebody came in and said like this is ridiculous, you know. But um, Julia talks about a um, you know a procession once again going to the civilian cemetery of you know of a soldier, and this was like the last straw. So right around Christmas time of 1864, um, they drafted a petition. Um, that was really just very eloquent. Um, I put the text in, in the book, but I mean, it just is, you know, we are citizens, we are fighting, we deserve to be honored like our white brethren and, you know, in a military cemetery. I mean, that's a pretty amazing thought, considering that many of them just a few years earlier had been enslaved, you know. Um, they were able to go around to the wards of the hospital and get, um, you know, get people to sign, um, you know, their agreement. It was given to the Surgeon General. He put it up to the, you know, up the chain of command. It got to Montgomery Meigs within, like, a couple days, and it was, you know, agreed that, yes, they do belong in a military cemetery. So um, they were successful. Um, the about 150, I think, um, people who ha- soldiers who had been in the civilian cemetery were actually disinterred and reinterred in a military cemetery. You know, uh, with headstone. I mean, now recorded. I mean, the irony is that if they had stayed in the civilian cemetery, they would be in at this point, you know, unmarked graves. I mean, now they are. Um, you know, they have their own grave and their own headstone and that sort of thing. So, um, so that was just one example of. Uh, people really, you know, kind of having the agency to take action on their behalf. It, it, it is a, a, an important and moving story. The, the war comes to an end, uh, and with it, uh, it, the whole premise of the book, in some ways, you know, Wilbur's uh, life gets meaning. Get gets she develops a, an identity outside of her family or. Uh, or her role uh, taking care of others, 
by by creating this role, taking care of people uh, on her own terms. And, and the, but when the war ends, that mission doesn't end. We have just a few minutes left, but uh, mm-hmm. what does she do after the war? Well, she worked uh, for the Freedmen's Bureau for a few years and then um, started realizing um, that the writing was on the wall, that the money was going to be drying up. So um, she realized she did want to stay in Washington. This is where she could lead an independent life. So she very proactively sought a government job. And this is really the first kind of generation of female government workers. So she became a clerk in the patent office. She worked there until she was almost 80 years old. So we're talking about like another 25 years in Washington. Um, She got involved in suffrage. Um, She maintained uh, friendships with both black and white women. Uh, Harriet Jacobs um, left left the area, but she came back in the 1870s, and so they became, you know, kind of reconnected. Um, Mm -hmm. She actually did become reconnected with the niece that I mentioned, um, not quite how she envisioned, but that did happen. So that was sort of a good kind of full circle thing. Um, and, uh, you know, stayed kind of active in what was going on in the world around her. The, the, uh, the story of the niece coming back after 15 years apart was, uh, it doesn't quite work out as, as one would hope, not a fairy tale ending, but it does, does close the circle on right. that. Um, well, let me ask a, a question that I ask guests on the show uh, regularly, the, the Civil War time machine question. If you could go back to the 1860s for 30 minutes and visit with someone, talk with someone from that era, uh, and in your case, I'll say someone other than Julia Wilbur, <laughs> right. uh, who, who would it be? Who would you go back to talk with and what would you want to ask them? Um. Well, I would be interested in talking to Harriet Jacobs for sure uh, and just getting more of kind of her perspective on things. She did write some letters, but she didn't leave, you know, the kind of, you know, record that we have of of this period of her life in any event. Um, And maybe just, you know, talk about, talk to some of the free people that she worked with, you know, and how did they see things? We get little glimpses, you know, she'll sometimes quote like an excerpt, but, you know, as you know, we don't have too many voices of of these people. And so I guess maybe that would be the person I would most really like to talk to. She mentions a woman like Lucy Lawton, for example. What was Lucy's experience? Or there was another woman um, named Nancy Carter in Richmond. What was her experience? That would be what I would like to spend my 30 minutes with. Or if you could give me a few more, that would be good, too. That that would be good. You mentioned uh, uh, another one one of the freed women who named her her child Uh after uh, Julia Wilbur. Yeah. Uh, but then, then both yeah. mo- mother and child yeah. don't live very long, as I right. recall. Right. Yeah, there was a lot of you know disease and death, as as you know, during that time. So, um, and you know, I think uh, as I sort of say with the title of the book, I mean, she tried to lead a civil life in an uncivil time. What could she do to make a difference? So sometimes I sort of think about you know what would she be thinking about? Um, uh, first of all, that we're talking about her. <laughs> On Civil War Talk Radio, when all she did was, you know, as she saw, it was keep diaries, you know, for her family. Um, and, you know, what what would she say about, you know, what we should be doing, you know, we should be trying to find a way to lead a civil life. Well, she she certainly did make a difference, uh, both in her own life and in the lives of the people that, that she helped uh, in Alexandria and before the war in Rochester and, and the area around there. Uh, Really a, a fascinating example of, of looking beneath the skin of history and finding 
uh, someone besides the generals and the, the presidents, right. uh, or for that matter, even the soldiers that so many historians write about now uh, that, that we haven't heard from before. Yeah. It's an interesting book. Uh, listeners, I highly uh, recommend uh, take a look at A Civil Life in an Uncivil Time, Julia Wilbur's Struggle for Purpose. Uh, it's written by Paula Whitaker, who's been our guest tonight. Paula, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.